Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. We're joined by Jory Zimmerman, who is a New York estate planning attorney. She's based here in Manhattan. We're coming off of what I would describe as a very tumultuous election season. For most of us in the estate planning world, there's been lots of conjecture as to what tools we're going to have available to us between now and the end of the year and what's going to carry forward into 2021. But Jory's going to help us think through some good decision making that people should have as they think about their affairs, not only as we go and end up 2020 and walk into 2021, but for some good ideas generally. So with that, Jory, welcome aboard. Thank you for having me, Fraser. It's a pleasure to join you on your podcast this afternoon. Beautiful day here in New York. I know, and we're inside recording. We didn't plan that correctly. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully you've got a good view. Yes. Here we are. We're at the end of 2020. Everybody in the wealth world, and especially the estate planning world, has been on red alert with the idea that with a potential regime change, there's going to be a whole different set of rules in place, and that some of the tools that we've had at our disposal, their effectiveness is probably going to be reduced given certain outcomes. As we're recording right now, we don't know what's happening for sure, although it looks like there's going to be a divided government. With that in mind, when clients are walking through your door and your current clients are trying to figure out whether to take advantage of certain conditions, what do you see out there? What are you counseling them to do at this point? Well, the first thing I want to know, if I don't already, is whether the client has used their estate tax exemptions, both federal and the applicable state, whether it's New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, or wherever they happen to reside. I think that that tool is an amazing one out there that we have an opportunity at the moment to take advantage of. And given the uncertainty of next year and beyond, it behooves any client who has the economic wherewithal to use their 2020 exemptions, which as you probably are aware, are $11.5 million per individual and about $23 million per couple. Using that exemption right now, if you have the bandwidth to do it, would allow you to make gifts out of your estate, reduce the taxable estate, lock in those exemptions, and there will be no clawback so clients can rest easy on that. I've been talking to a lot of different advisors and clients as well on that. And invariably, many people understand the power of reducing the estate tax, but they have trouble kind of getting off their butt to get that in motion. What do you tell people who are sort of worried about giving away too much and having a King Lear problem where the estate tax tail wags the dog? They worry that they're giving away all their money and it's going to blow up five years later. All of a sudden, they don't have enough to live off of. I think there's some of that out there. I think there are clients who also are deer in the headlights. They want to wait and see what happens. There's too much uncertainty. And what I try to emphasize with them is that none of us know for sure what's going to happen. And if Congress does nothing, transfers after December 2025 will have a $5 million exemptions available, perhaps $6 million in 2026. And there is some current thinking that depending on 
who prevails in this election moment, that the exemptions will be rolled back to three and a half million dollars, which are the 2009 levels, which would give us a three and a half million estate tax exemption, a million dollar gift and a top rate at 45 percent. There is some current thinking that with all the uncertainty and the need for funds for stimulus and due to COVID, that the government will be looking for places to get funds. The estate tax is usually one of those places they look. I think clients who are looking to retain some control and access are a little bit reluctant to give assets outright. So they're thinking more about gifts. So you hear people talk about it's 2012 all over again, or as Yogi Berra said, it's like deja vu again. But it's not 2012 all over again. It's 2012 with a twist. So I think that's where I'm counseling clients and where I think they're looking is how can I put myself in a better position, but still maintain some control and have access to my assets. And that's usually through a trust of some sort. Some of the gizmos and devices that we have at our disposal, for many people who've wandered into this, that's where we get into the acronyms oftentimes. Their effectiveness is particularly increased with the fact that we have low interest rates now and that the markets themselves are volatile. Maybe talk about that a little bit. I've tried to counsel people that the interest rates now are so low, they're generationally low. They may last for a while, who knows? But these are the types of things that allow you to leverage different techniques and, in a sense, take advantage of the opportunity while it's here in a non-legislative sense. Yes, I think the acronyms that you're referring to affectionately, typically one strategy to work with clients if they're willing and they have the appetite is something called a GRAT, which is a grantor-retained annuity trust. Right now, we have lots of flexibility with those that may get reduced depending on which way the election goes and Congress acts. But let's stay with what we have for the moment. So we have a lot of pandemic volatility in the financial markets. And then clients may have, and many of mine do, assets that are on paper have depressed values. And that gives you an opportunity coupled with the low interest rate environment to take some of those assets and investments and transfer them to a grad or a grant to retained annuity trust, whereby there's very little transfer tax exemption potentially used to create the vehicle. And then the term can extend, you know, after the grad term, it's usually for a period of years. And then after that, the assets can go to family members or a continuing trust for family members where the original grantor retains some control. So that's one, I think, especially if you're thinking that the assets will pop in value again later. You got me there. I was just going to say it's particularly useful for assets that are at a certain level of value now and could have, let's call it explosive or very consistent upward growth in the future where you're getting that growth in the asset value off of your estate tax liability and into the hands of your beneficiaries that much sooner. Exactly. Everybody can take a look at their portfolios with their advisors, but there's often a block of some kind of stock that somebody has a sentimental feeling about, at least in my experience. And there's a good possibility that those companies will be on the uptick again. And so this may be a moment to utilize those potential investments for a vehicle such as this. So one thing that I'd been talking to some people about over the last couple of years was the impact of state 
estate tax issues and that for people who haven't reviewed their affairs recently, that it's something to really pay attention to. I use New York as an example of a state that is decoupled in many ways from the federal estate tax exemption numbers and that failing to really look at that closely, you could end up lighting hundreds of thousands of dollars on fire. Maybe take us through your analysis of that and how you get people to think about that and to make sure their affairs are in order. There are two threshold questions. One is, where do you reside and where are you intending to reside? And that's a question right now in the pandemic. Many people have gone to their vacation homes in a state other than where they usually think of as their domicile or residence. They may be subject to a tax regime that they're not expecting, whether it be that they came to New York State from upstate New York from Florida or they went from New York to Maine. All those issues have to be looked at in terms of where you think you're domiciled right now, God forbid something should happen. For New York, it is one of the states, as you said, has been decoupled for an estate tax regime, as have many other states in the tri-state area. And New York, unfortunately, has an estate tax for those who have assets above 5.8, almost 5.9 million. And with the way the calculation works, it might actually wind up being 6 million plus because the tax is part of the base in which you do the calculation. But the nuances aside, if you have assets over this threshold of, call it 5.9 million, everybody refers to it as a cliff. It's like you get to the edge of the cliff and then you fall off and you're all the way back down in the ravine. And what that means is the tax calculation starts at dollar one from all your assets, not the assets just over the $5.8 million threshold. I think that clients behooves them to take a look at their portfolios, where they are, what the valuation is. It's well below the federal exemption. So gifts can be made. New York does not have a gift tax, but New York does have a three-year add back until 2025. You have to look at all the permutations and figure out where it makes sense for a client case by case. For sure, New Yorkers should give that some thought because assets over the threshold will be taxed. And I believe that top rate is 16%. And that could be a lot of money. No, that's meaningful. You know, for listeners out there that aren't in New York uh, or even in the tri-state area, the question to ask your advisors is, you've got me planned out correctly from the federal perspective, but what happens at the state level? And as you said, you have to make sure if you've had a change in circumstance from a resident's perspective to communicate that to your advisors, because that can change how your state plan works at the state level. And we just talked about New York being at 16%. That can be meaningful money. Exactly, Fraser. And part of it is that many clients, and I experience this with mine, is that they think that they put an estate plan in place and it's like they lock the drawer and they're done. It's always good to go back and review. And I advise people every three years. I usually prevail on a five-year rolling basis, but the idea is that you would do it for where you are right now. And then you'll review it again when your circumstances change. It sort of falls in line with what are the main events in your life? And it's birth, marriage, sort of business, whatever happens in that, divorce and death. And many times those are useful milestones. But the way the law changes, not only at the federal and at the state level, but it certainly begs for at least a five-year review. I agree with you on that. Right. So for those clients who have relocated during the pandemic and it's turning into what may be a year of residency somewhere else, they could look at their planning with that lens. And then if things go, quote, back to normal, unquote, then they can look at their planning again 18 months, two years from now. Before we go on to the use of charitable planning, there are a couple of 
tools that I think that people forget about, but can be powerful, especially when done over a period of time. And this gets back to the annual exclusions and paying for educations and medical expenses. Talk about the power that that can bring in a state plan and, and just a general gifting plan. Yeah, right now, I think that clients were really well poised to take advantage of the annual exclusion, which I think you're right. Many people don't focus on it. It's $15,000 per individual and $30,000 per couple, but that's per donee. As a donor, you could make $15,000 gifts to all your nieces and nephews, your cousins, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, even if you have 100 of them, and that becomes a lot of money. That threshold will stay for the foreseeable future. Service is saying it'll be for 2021 as well as 2020. I'm a big believer of using the EdMed exception, which is, as you referred to, you can pay directly the medical expenses, which under COVID may be no small thing if someone in the family has been unfortunately affected, or educational expenses directly to the provider of those expenses. Then there will be no thresholds for either gift purposes or GST purposes. So that becomes important too, because maybe you want to be able to pay tuition for your grandchildren. And it's a simple way to do it. You don't have to go through a whole litany of forms and craziness on that front. You just make the gifts at the cash level for the 15000 per person, and then you pay directly to the institutions, either educational or medical, and it's an easy way to get your planning done. Right now, until Congress acts differently, you can even do those gifts from a trust. You can do it individually, or you could do it from a trust in which you may have you may have created a trust for family members, and then you can use those trust assets. So it's always helpful to look at that. A flexible tool. <laughs> yeah, it's a very flexible tool, and it's one that you're right. Clients don't always think about, and I often need to remind them. So let's get back to the charitable planning, and it's something that is it takes on so much more importance now with COVID really sort of rearing its head and many institutions needing money now more than ever. And at a time when people are really pulling back the reins on their giving, you can do multiple things with your charitable giving. I thought it'd be interesting to hear your take on it, to see how you help people integrate their charitable planning into this crazy environment and then into their overall estate planning. Helping clients with their philanthropic goals and their alienimosinari, I love that word, intent, is one of my favorite things to do because I'm a big believer that by the time you get to a certain station in life, shall we say, that it's really great to give back. I'm always happy to have clients talk to me about what organizations resonate with their sensibilities and how they'd like to support them. Right now, with the uncertainty of the coronavirus and funding from all sources, charitable organizations are stretched and they're struggling. It's a wonderful time for clients who may be seeking an income tax advantage or an estate tax advantage or both to think about charitable giving. There have been some changes in t this year with the CARES Act and the SECURE Act so that individuals can think about utilizing an above-the-line deduction, which will be $300 per individual, $600 for a married couple. It has to be to a public charity and not a donor-advised fund. So that may be one drawback for some people, but I'm sure there are public charities that could use your support. And then 100% of cash contributions also to a public charity, not a discretionary advised fund, will be deductible. So that's also nice to know. I know clients oftentimes want to use property or give stock, but cash contributions are most welcome by charities. 
Contributions of long-term capital gain property are not completely out of the box. They're just subject to an AGI limitation of 30%. Really makes sense for clients to sit down with their advisors, take a look at their balance sheet, take a look at their cash flow, take a look at where their tax liability is projected to be, and then think in terms of which organizations they'd like to support. Again, to reemphasize, the timing of this type of planning is very important. I'm sure you run into clients who are trying to figure out, and this was maybe much more acute before the election, but where their donations have the most leverage in terms of sort of tax mitigation. So if you thought that taxes were going to go up in 2021, maybe you wait until you make those donations until then because they'll have a little bit more power in the income tax planning side of things. But it looks like the uncertainty in the divided government, it's a good time to sort of revisit that thought and maybe not delay as much. Right. And maybe spread some out over both years. Hedge your bets. Do a little bit now, a little bit in 2021. I mean, for assets that you want to hold on to and you don't want to sell and perhaps still want an income stream from, think in terms of creating some kind of charitable remainder trust, depending on whether you go with an annuity trust or unit trust, and this all gets very technical, some analysis should be done to make those decisions, then you could retain some of the income stream from your assets, but then have the remainder go to charity at some point in the future, which is also a very nice way to give assets and ameliorate potentially the capital gains tax if it's a greatly appreciated asset. Right. Getting back to the CARES Act and the SECURE Act, which were sort of early 2020 phenomenons. So from the SECURE Act, one thing that was part of the estate planning toolkit was using the stretch IRA, but that seems to be reduced in effectiveness at this point. What's the thought process there? I mean, effectively, you'll hear people say there's no more stretch IRAs, and that's basically true. It's limited to 10 years and certain eligible beneficiaries, and there's a short list of who qualifies. My favorite planning tool is a charitable remainder unit trust. And so that is a vehicle that can be named as the IRA beneficiary, and then it'll mimic the stretch. So you have to, for sure, because then you're going to be distributing the IRA to the trust. If the trust meets certain qualifications, then it's as if you're stretching it out over a period of years and you're not limited just to the 10 years. You have to review with your advisors, your attorney and others, your beneficiary designations to make sure that they're all in sync and lined up and that the trust actually qualifies. So we were talking about things that may or may not happen next year in terms of the capital gains tax. And many wealthy people, maybe not so wealthy people, use appreciated stock as part of their donation strategy. Again, I think what we were talking about before is the idea of maybe hedging your bets. And if the different tax rates don't move as much as had been predicted before, perhaps the idea that sort of getting money to various charities earlier isn't such a an affront to actual aggressive income tax or capital gains tax planning. What else are you seeing that you're trying to keep your clients aware of as we move into 2021 on that capital gains tax intersection with the state planning? Yeah, a couple of thoughts. One is that, of course, you can still give property to a donor advised fund. It's just the availability of the deductions per the CARES Act are to public charities, but that doesn't mean you can't, a client can't use a donor advised fund. And that is in one way to make a donation to charity this year and perhaps have it then, you haven't decided which charities, and then you can pick the charities next year. You don't have to be under that pressure. So that is one option. The other is to think in terms of clients with, now I'm back to New York State, clients who have 
looking at some estate planning and if they have an estate that exceeds $6 million, perhaps they want to think about giving some portion of their assets to charity in some form or another to reduce the value of their overall assets now or later, but also to avoid some of the or ameliorate some of the New York State estate tax. There's only four places your money can go. You can spend it, you can give it to your kids, your heirs, your family, you can give it to the government, or you can give it to charity. Right. You choose. If you have charitable intent anyway, you're able to do that and reduce your overall estate. It can be powerful. Biden is talking about, should the election go his way, bringing back some of the proposals that are still hanging out there from the Obama Green Book. One of those includes eliminating the capital gains tax and taxing capital gains as ordinary income, which could put them at potentially 39%. So again, maybe hedging that bet and take a look at your portfolio, see what appreciated assets you have, and could any of them go to charity now? Something to think about. I think we've sort of run the gamut a little bit on some of these tools from the charitable perspective. Let's talk a little bit more focused on the trust aspect. I'm certainly partial to trust situs and using that as a way to take advantage of different places that treat assets differently than others. Trusts themselves have lots of different functions and sort of paying or avoiding unnecessary income and transfer taxes being one of them. But what are you seeing in terms of the general jurisdictional framework out there as real benefits for clients and especially for New York ones or tri-state area ones that come in contact with you? Using a trust is the other tool that I like to use quite liberally. I find that it's very helpful. More and more clients have become enamored of them. And as various states adopt some form of the uniform trust code, okay, we haven't done it here in New York yet, but who knows, maybe someday, trusts are becoming more and more flexible, which gives clients the ability to use them for their facts and circumstances rather than trying to fit the round peg into the square hole. I think trust-friendly jurisdictions are looked at by clients who are no longer so my experience, they're no longer so wedded to exactly the jurisdiction they live in necessarily. They're willing to take a look around and see what may make sense. And yet they look at jurisdictions that have some solidity to them. History, a trust-friendly court system, and rules that make sense to them. So I think Delaware appeals a lot to New York area clients historically, has for some years. I think Tennessee, for example, is up and coming as an appealing place for clients in New York to think about creating trusts if they're looking to diversify jurisdictions. I think my experience in people on the West Coast, particularly California, look more to like South Dakota and Nevada. So there's still a little bit of a regional bias, but I think clients are open to thinking about um, creating trust in other jurisdictions and then using that as a diversification play as well. One of the tools out there is the Spousal Lifetime Access Trust, which is sort of both a good structural tool and very good, I'd call it, estate planning vehicle. And one of the features of it is that they can't be identical or else the IRS does not take kindly to that. What are you seeing in terms of the use of jurisdictions to sort of spread out or make the trusts a little bit more different so that they pass muster from a structural perspective? Yeah, I think that the SLATs or the Spousal Lifetime Access Trusts are being thought about a lot more right now because it goes back to what we were saying earlier, that clients are looking to 
maximize whatever use of uh, state tax and gift tax exemptions they can, but also want to maintain some sense of access and control. So this gives them that, particularly in situations where, and I hate to say it this way, but the marriage is solid. Clients can have an opportunity to create a trust. Each spouse would create a trust for the other potentially. It doesn't have to be both, but oftentimes it is. And then you don't want to make them exactly the same because then you're going to trip up something called the reciprocal trust doctrine so that the trust should be slightly different, maybe set up in different states, different jurisdictions to enhance whatever statutory things that are available in those jurisdictions, use different terms, length of years, or have a different measuring life. You want to use different assets, different trustees. And so that way they're not considered just mirror images of each other that potentially the IRS could then attack. These are irrevocable trusts. So clients have to be sure and you would need some gift tax exemption to do it, but there is no clawback. And then the lifetime benefit because you're doing it during lifetime is that assets could be distributed to the spouse, the other spouse, the beneficiary spouse, or to other family members or to children. They can also be done grantor or non-grantor. And I only bring that up because there's a little bit of an income tax play there. If you do it as a grantor trust, the donor spouse, the spouse who creates it, could then pay the income tax on the assets in the trust. And it's a way to make an additional tax-free gift. It depends on the family and the situation. It depends on their economic wherewithal, but it that could be an interesting play as well. When it comes to a trustee, it can't be the donor spouse. It could be the beneficiary spouse, but then you might need to have a ascertainable standard with respect to any distributions. When I mean that health, education, maintenance, or support, commonly known as HEMS. In my mind, a corporate trustee actually is a nice option to consider for a slat. They're unbiased, they're objective. And- yeah, right. And then also, if you have the non-beneficiary spouse the beneficiary spouse is the trustee, either of them. If the marriage falls apart, then then you have a whole big can of worms to undo. In fairness, that is the downside risk, is that death of the beneficiary spouse or divorce. There's some thinking out there that you could potentially have a third party with a power to turn the grantor spouse into a beneficiary in that event. I mean, you've got to look carefully at these and make decisions that make sense for you and your situation. Certainly have local counsel in whatever jurisdiction you select uh, if you're diversifying jurisdictions because a community property state, for instance, would have all kinds of other considerations, including maybe the need to get a spousal waiver before you fund the trust. One other thought, too, is that if you're not looking to use a state tax exemption, I haven't done this myself, but I have heard that people are talking about doing an interspousal gift using the maximum marital gift tax deduction and then funding the trust with the assets that are received by virtue of the gift. I think you have to be very careful with that, not to avoid any kind of look-through doctrine that the IRS might apply, which they call the step transaction doctrine. So you have to be quite clear in the timing. The gift would be made at one point in time, and then sometime later, the assets contributed to the trust. Probably want at least a tax return to reflect the gift before doing something to try to reduce the step transaction fact pattern bullet points there. So let's talk a little bit about asset protection. That's something where trusts are commonly used. 
What has your been experience been? From my world, I sort of started out being fairly expert in Delaware capabilities on that front. Other states have proliferated. And I try to counsel people on the asset protection front that the trusts are one component of a good asset protection plan. And sometimes things that can be good tax planning can be poor asset protection planning and vice versa. How do you help clients see through all that? It depends, again, on an analysis of their facts and circumstances and what they're trying to accomplish. The doctor who has a practice who wants to put a nest egg of assets in an asset protection trust, that makes complete sense to me. I rarely have seen the situation where clients should be putting all their assets in an asset protection trust. And then the selection of which jurisdiction is going to be a little bit driven by what you're trying to accomplish. But as you said, Delaware is very well-settled law. They have some specific rules about how you go about setting up asset protection trusts, but then if you follow the rules, it, it works. And so it may make sense to stick a little closer to home in that situation, but selecting a jurisdiction, you could even go to Connecticut. For New Yorkers, that seems to be very convenient to set up an asset protection trust. I think also depending on the client and what I've seen more often is clients not really wanting to go through all the steps required to set up an asset protection trust, but they want a higher level of creditor protection should something come up. They don't have anything. They don't anticipate anything, but they want to buffet themselves. And there also other jurisdictions like Delaware can help with even just setting up a regular trust. I was going to say many of the usual suspects in the sort of trust jurisdiction world, Delaware, Wyoming, New Hampshire, Tennessee, and other places, they have those components where you can, in a sense, bolt on that feature to a trust that you would normally set up purely for estate planning purposes. So you get the benefit of a little extra creditor protection uh, going forward. One of the other features that it's been a major move forward in estate planning, but just wealth structuring generally, is in the world of using a directed trust. And I've gone into some length on that in other venues. But I'd like to hear where you come from, New York attorney especially, where you see the directed trust applying to that kind of tri-state area client and why it's important to think about that as part of one's toolkit. I'm a big fan of directed trusts. And again, this goes under the heading of flexibility and what may make sense in your situation, you being the particular client for your family. There are numerous states that have at this point adopted a directed trust statute. I think the number is more than half of the states at this point. A Delaware, Tennessee, New Jersey, Connecticut, not New York, interestingly enough. New York is a bit of a holdout. And I've prefaced my comments by saying I've long taken the view that the legislatures are slow to catch up with the practice. I think that clients have for a while been looking at a number of years, looking at having different advisors who are specialized, right? There's one who can do the administration. There's one who can do really well with the investments. There's one who can help with distribution decisions. And so they're looking to bifurcate or trifurcate the traditional trustee role and have different advisors who can assist with those decisions and give counsel to perhaps the trustees. So the ability to hire a professional money manager or investment manager to make those investment management decisions, I think, is something the clients are looking at a lot. 
oftentimes setting up a trust in a directed trust jurisdiction allows them to actually have the protections of the statute and the courts there for setting that up in a way that the trustee can then follow the directions of somebody who's giving the advice rather than trying to delegate to a trust, an investment advisor, which can be done as well, but is often more complex in how it gets done and who has, li- who has liability. Right. I was going to say, as I tell people that the world is coming to grips with the fact that one person or one institution really can't do everything perfectly. And in a trust world where you've got, let's say, three major functions and maybe one strategic one with the investment management, the safeguarding and custodianship and administrative roles, and then the distribution decision roles, to expect that to occur under one roof well, I think the world's kind of moving away from that viewpoint. That leads us kind of into another component of the trust world, which is the trust protector, which is sort of that strategic role I just alluded to, and having someone overseeing the general framework of the trust and to make sure it's working strategically in the ways that the donor envisioned and way that works well with the law. How do you look at a trust protector in an estate plan vehicle? What do you look for when you start putting that kind of structure together? I have a preference for using trust protectors where there is a need for a family member or close personal friend of the grantor in the mix to assist with the family dynamic, the decision-making, perhaps the ability to hire and fire trustees. Where I counsel clients is that utilizing a trust protector as someone who's an independent third party, doesn't have a beneficial interest in the trust, isn't named as a trustee, depending on the decision-making capability and the discretionary decisions that they're empowered to make by the terms of the instrument, they may or may not be viewed as a, quote, fiduciary, unquote, and have exposure in that regard. So oftentimes a trust protector is honored to be named in that role, but they also want to be able to do it in a way that makes sense for them. It can be done for all kinds of decisions. It can be to direct the investments, much like an investment advisor role under the directed trust scenario. You could use the trust protector to be that person who tells the trustee how to invest the monies. It could be to modify the terms of the trust, maybe clean up some administrative provisions over the years as things change with the family. It could be to change trust situs. Maybe the trust is set up in New Hampshire and then you want to move it to Delaware or you want to move it to Tennessee. There may be reasons for changing situs having to do with the family and where they are or their dynamic and changing trustees. Oftentimes, a corporate trustee is named, but then there are individuals who are the advisors, whether it's the investment advisor or a trust protector. And then the family who creates the trust wants to give the trust protector the ability to change the trustees down the road should circumstances change or feelings change about the trustee that's named. Powers of a trust protector are basically based on a British concept, but they can be broad or narrow depending on the situation. And you really have to look closely at clients and what they're looking to accomplish but you would ideally spell them out in the trust agreement. I tell people too, when thinking about taking on that role of trust protector to really delineate that role, as you mentioned, because it's the type of thing where if you start making decisions, ultimately you're gonna be responsible for them. And especially for people who are extremely diligent on certain things, where a trust protector's role starts and where it stops 
versus some other role that's spelled out in the trust. If you start making decisions that overlap with other ones, that's when confusion can reign. And then if a problem develops later, that's something that people have to just be mindful of as they take these roles on. It could be an uncle to the beneficiaries who has the ability to change corporate trustees. And then that role is pretty clearly defined. But on the other hand, it could be an accountant or an attorney who's named as trust protector, perhaps to provide an objective voice in the mix if there are siblings who don't get along, who are the beneficiaries of the trust, or if there's some concern in the family about the children's spouses and that maybe they're gold diggers. You have to look at the facts and circumstances to determine what makes sense. But having that definition, I think, really helps. To sort of tie this up a little bit, I think the idea that everything has to be an individual, that's who staffs these roles, it doesn't have to be. And that's where corporate trustees and other experts, maybe law firms or other entities, can be useful. I've seen it certainly in the distribution context where an individual or individuals who understand the family dynamic work with a corporate trustee who provides a little bit of structure to the process so that when let's say a 22-year-old who discovers the trust is in place and that they're a beneficiary decides that they want a $400,000 distribution to go buy a Lamborghini, that corporate trustee can be in the role of requiring a budget and requiring a purpose for the funds. Whereas in other cases, the idea is beneficiaries looking to take a distribution to buy the house, and maybe that's difficult for the corporate trustee to understand. The two individuals or one individual can work with the corporate trustee to make them understand that this is good use of the trust's assets and it's a good distribution to make and in furtherance of what the donor had intended that money to work for. Yes. And I have a bit of a personal bias. I'm a firm believer that corporate trustees are well worth the money you pay them. Often, most times they do the custody, they do the tax reporting, they have professionals in-house who can handle a lot of the bookkeeping and record keeping that's necessary for a trust, as well as they have access to all kinds of professionals, whether it's on the money management side or on the planning side that may make some sense for families. So often uh, council clients to seriously consider using a corporate trustee, but then often, like you say, they may want to have someone other than the corporate trustee for their own comfort and peace of mind. Maybe it's a longstanding relationship with a money manager who's going to manage the investment decisions or oversee the investment decisions. And in that case, a directed trust works really well for those clients because they can split up the functions in that way, or maybe a client wants to create an intervivos trust and fund it with stock in a family company, and then they're going to also fund it with some cash. And so they want a professional money manager to manage the cash, but they want to retain the control of the family stock and the voting rights there, split up the functions that way. And so the corporate trustee is a great resource in the mix. But it's also, I think many corporate trustees, as you're sure you're aware, are looking at how roles can be divided up and who makes sense to hold which role. Circling the square on that one, I've been a part of many situations where concentrated positions or family businesses that where the corporate trustee is really the sole decision maker around that. Oftentimes, that's a quick road to tension <laughs> where the family thinks one thing, even the grantor thinks one thing, and then the 
corporate trustee is thinking another one in terms of how to be fair to everybody. And maybe the best way to be fair is to blow out the family business and to put it into a more liquid portfolio. And that may run at odds. So I really like your thinking on that as it relates to using a corporate trustee for things that are useful for a family. And many times it's the record keeping, it's the back office, it's the difficult decisions, yet at the same time, maintaining control, maintaining some thought process around investment decision-making. That to me in many ways is why the directed trustee role evolved the way it did from maybe one trustee running everything. Yes, I agree. I think more and more as entrepreneurs are thinking about doing their estate planning they have those large blocks of stock, whether it's a family business or whether it's some kind of partnership, and they need to be able to think more broadly about how it's going to be managed, when it would be liquidated, how it would be liquidated, how you would make those decisions, who would be involved in making them. Having a directed trusteeship where there's an investment advisor, there's the administrative trustee, and then the third party, the trust protector, and perhaps it's a little bit of a check and balance so that there's no one person who's making all the decision, but there's a team that's looking to carry out the grantor's intent. And as I tell people too, who are, I'd call it graduating from one type of wealth to another or going from illiquid to liquid, you're coming onto a new set of problems. They're good problems, but they're problems that need solutions. And many times that advice is going to come in the form of more than one person. I think for most people, especially we sort of wrap things up here and think about how to get into 2021 in a smart way, it's good to assemble your team around you, both from a business perspective and a family perspective and accounting perspective and a legal perspective, et cetera. Be ready to have those functions work together. And that's an important part of being smart and trying to attack the uncertainty that we're seeing at the end of the year. I counsel a lot of clients on what I call pre-estate planning. What they need to do, the exercise they need to go through to prepare for the estate planning conversation with me and with their other advisors. And it's about looking at your total picture, getting all your documents and beneficiary designations together, looking at your balance sheet, looking at your liquidity and your investments. It's not a bad moment to take a look at the big picture and then think about, do I want to make some decisions before year end? What are they? And what decisions do I want to make for next year? Because we are in a moment where you have some opportunity, but you also have some uncertainty. That might be a good place to wrap up here. We've covered a ton of territory. Why don't we finish with kind of a fun question? 2020 has been a difficult one for lots of people. And for those of us who've tried to ride it out in Manhattan the whole time, it's particularly strenuous. What are you looking forward to do in 2021? Or you know, what have you written down to just say, you know what? 2020 has been kind of a bummer, or I haven't been able to do the things I've wanted to do, but I'm going to do this in 2021. What's on your list? Truthfully, going someplace where there's a beautiful beach. (laughs) I was heading to Costa Rica for a couple of weeks before the lockdown. So whether it's Costa Rica or Barcelona or someplace else in the Mediterranean, there's definitely a beach in my future. Excellent. Well, Jory, that's a good answer, and I subscribe to that completely. (laughs) (laughs) What is the best way for our listeners to find you? You can find me on LinkedIn and by email at jory.b.zimmerman at gmail.com. I would look forward to any conversation that anyone would like to have with me. Terrific. And I will have that information in the show notes. So for listeners, you can just click on the website and it will be there. Jory, thanks so much for joining me. Frazier, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.